welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Today's conversation is with a true disruptor and change agent within the judicial system. Felicia Farber is an attorney with over 27 years of litigation and negotiation experience. Felicia has a degree in electrical and computer engineering. And this is what makes Felicia stand out as a change agent in making the judicial system work. Felicia believes that the best way to resolve conflicts is outside of the courtroom through alternative dispute resolutions. You're going to be interested in this conversation if you want to get an understanding of how to resolve conflict that would normally pursue or go down the path of traditional litigation if you're thinking of arbitration and or mediation. Many times these methods are used in employee-employer situations within the workplace, be there with claims of or allegations of discrimination, sexual harassment. You can pursue some type of resolution through arbitration and mediation. Also, these methods are used in several types of situations. For example, marital disputes, so with when you're trying to resolve and come to an agreement as to dis- divorce, the distribution of property, even in commercial and consumer cases. Take, for example, if you have an instance with a contractor and a home renovation, there could be disputes that arise that could be resolved through alternative dispute resolution. During this conversation that I have with Felicia, you're actually going to learn why Felicia believes so strongly in resolving conflict outside of this courtroom. And it sprang from a personal situation that she had where she had to seek a resolution. Felicia is the owner and runs FarberSolutions.com. She has facilitates settlements in several different types of cases. Some of the ones where I just mentioned, commercial, employment, construction, divorce with homeowners, condo and co-op associations, also in product liabilities and medical malpractice. I know you will learn so much from Felicia 
She is an award-winning mediator and arbitrator. You're going to enjoy this conversation. And moreover, as is the point of Legally Brief, we're going to understand that we really can make these institutions, be it judicial, educational, whatever they are, we can make them work for us. So sit back and I know you'll enjoy the conversation that I have with Felicia Farber. Hello and welcome back. Today, I am really excited to have a conversation with Felicia Farber from Farber Resolutions LLC, which is an arbitration and mediation service. When you look at Felicia, your long list of accomplishments of which you know, I want you to briefly talk about, I know that they include being the 2019 ADR Practitioner of the Year, um, also receiving, well, which is part of the James Boyski Award winner from the New Jersey State Bar. And if you go on to your website, if you look at your CV, what I find the consistent pattern is, is that you have served for, what, over 27 years as a neutral And you're going to talk to and tell the audience a little bit about what that means. But both of us having worked in the court system as litigators, we know that a lot of times the judicial system can be a system, be it criminal or civil, that doesn't work the way that the litigants, the parties intend. So can you talk to us a little bit about your background for just to start off and tell everybody who you are? Absolutely. And Judy, thank you so much for having me here. I'm I'm thrilled to join you today. Again, I'm Felicia Farber with Farber Resolutions, and I am a full-time arbitrator and mediator based in New York and New Jersey. But because of the pandemic, I have converted my practice to virtual. Uh, So I have been able to resolve disputes all over the country. And I think this is the new way of the world or at least some hybrid version of it. So my background is as a litigator. I started in New York City doing trial work in product liability, medical malpractice, construction, torts, and uh, commercial types of contract business cases. So I did that for several years. And I also, along the way, have ended up, I think, in life, you know, if you you can't help it. Sometimes you end up in lawsuits. So I have been a litigant, both as a plaintiff and as a defendant. So I understand what it's like to be at all sides of the table. And I really believe that ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, is the best means to resolve disputes. And I think it should be the first stop before litigation. I think people should try to resolve their suits on their own terms. So having been a litigator, a negotiator, and then an arbitrator and a mediator, I really see that the best way of dealing with any types of conflicts is to tackle it head on quickly and cost effectively. So the less time that goes by, the less investment and discovery, which is paper discovery, depositions, motion practice, everything that takes up so much time and money. It's so much better to leave that behind and just get right to the heart of the dispute. So uh, I am passionate about ADR, if you can't tell, and I have devoted my practice to it for, for many years now. 
Felicia, tell us what caused the shift. So you've been on both sides of the table, yes. a litigator. And I also want you just to touch on, you know, some people that are listening, they may not know the difference or the distinction between mediation and arbitration. So we'll talk about that. But what was it that caused you to shift from the traditional model of how our system is set up from the what you were talking about before paper discovery? So when the summons and complaint is filed, then you enter into the discovery phase with interrogatories. What made you make that shift to now alternative dispute? Why was that? Well, it was actually a personal situation. I ended up moving out to New Jersey from New York City with my husband, and we built a house out here. And we ended up, unbeknownst to us, getting involved with a scammer. So he was a crooked, disreputable a contractor, unfortunately. There are many great contractors out there, but uh, we did not get a good one. So we were embroiled in a multi-party uh, lawsuit because he brought in his subcontractors. And it took many, many years uh, to try and get us out of it. And ultimately, we had to go to arbitration. So I really was sold on having an alternative mechanism because it wasn't available here when I moved out to New Jersey. We did not have the mediation program through the courts, and I don't think we had the arbitration either. We actually went to a private administrator, the AAA, private arbitration organization. So I kept saying there's got to be a better way because it was just, you know, so much money and time that it was eating up and the anxiety level that we experienced, you know, as litigants was through the roof and we were helpless. So that's why I love alternative dispute resolution because parties are no longer helpless. They have a say in trying to resolve their dispute and they have control that they don't have in the courts. I had a conversation recently with uh, someone who was actually embroiled in litigation, and it's been going on for a while. And every point that you just said, the money, the time, and most importantly, the anxiety levels and the parties feeling helpless, would you say, because I've seen that personally, would you say that that is a part of the traditional court system that is broken? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The court system has to accommodate a lot of people. And they cannot worry about trying to deliver the best outcome for each litigant that comes through the judiciary system. So they handle it one way and you have to fit into that. So whereas it can work for some people, it's not necessarily the right fit for other people, especially individuals. If you're not a company, if you're a private person, you know, it's very, very hard to fund a long-term litigation. It can really tap you dry, send you into bankruptcy, and you can't get out of it. So, And I'm sure that you've seen actually those scenarios where if you are going against a company and you're an individual, part of a very common strategy basically to run you out of money or try to drag on the litigation so that either you're exhausted emotionally or exhausted financially. Did you often see that as a litigator? Absolutely. And even companies, smaller companies can't really stay in the game if they're against a bigger company. And so to even the score now, uh, we have something called third party funding third in litigation. 
And sometimes litigants will get third-party funders, which is basically outside financial assistance uh, to help them so that they could sustain the lawsuit because otherwise, you know, it's it's the big guy, little guy, and, and the little guy loses. Right. Circle back for me, Felicia, and explain to everyone the distinction between arbitration and then the mediation process. Oh, absolutely. Mediation is a separate process where the parties informally work with a trained neutral, somebody who has no stake in the outcome, they have no relationship with the parties, and they are there solely to facilitate a resolution that works for both sides. So they are just present in order to to be there to help with the negotiations. They do not dictate the outcome like a judge or an arbitrator. They don't tell the parties what to do. They just try and and steer them down the path of collaboration, communication to get them to some type of amicable resolution, something that they both find satisfactory and they can live with. Arbitration is taking your dispute and giving it to somebody else to decide, either a sole arbitrator or a panel of arbitrators, and saying, we can't agree on this. Here's all our evidence. You tell us who is right, who is wrong. You decide that for us. So you are relinquishing control in arbitration and giving it to somebody else, an arbiter, not a judge, but you know, separately, an arbitrator or arbitration panel to come up with some outcome that they think is fair and just based on the evidence. Again, opposed to mediation, where the parties work together to come to some type of outcome that they deem fair and just, not leaving it into the hands of strangers. Of those two processes, and I know that you are experienced and you serve as a neutral in both the arbitration process and mediation process, Do you are there any types of cases that you think, so someone listening to this, and they want their quote unquote day in court. Is there any one type of arbitration or mediation that you recommend over the other? Or is it just very case specific? It's very different. It's case specific. It's up to the party's preference. It has to do with uh, cost, with time frame. I'm actually a big proponent in every contract of putting in a clause first to try mediation and then step up to arbitration if mediation doesn't work, and then perhaps have a provision in there pertaining to litigation afterwards. But personally, I think that should be the order. So mediation is really taking parties where the communication has broken down and bringing them together to try and resolve the dispute on their own. Because so many times as a mediator, I could tell you that there is a gap in communication. The parties are talking, but they're not hearing each other. So there, you know, there's information that's missing or they're not listening. And when you can bring them together as the mediator, very often, in most of my cases and over 80% of my cases, they resolve their case. They resolve their dispute without having to go further down, you know, the arbitration or the litigation path. So I really feel that that is the quickest and most cost-effective way of resolving any dispute. So I recommend, because I'm also an attorney, so in all of the contracts that I, whenever I deal with people in a business setting, um, employment, construction, I always recommend having 
a mediation clause in there. So it should ideally select who the mediator will be or what agency or organization you'll get the mediator from and where the mediation will be held and in what time frame. Talk to us a little bit about, because this, in my opinion, alternative dispute, I know that it was started slowly around the country kind of as an another way to resolve conflict. It's grown. And now we see courts incorporating mediation within the process itself. So for example, someone that's listening to this, they think I'm going to go file a lawsuit, be it a matrimonial, an employment. But now you see so many court systems actually incorporating a specific date or time frame for mediation. Do you think that's a good thing? Is that something that you personally have worked toward? Do you endorse that? Or do you think the two systems and institutions should be separate? No, I highly endorse that. I think that's fantastic. And I hope to see more of it because mediation is a better way, uh, I think, as is arbitration than going through the route of the court system. When I look at all of the work that you've done and the publications, one thing that especially jumped out toward me was what you've done as far as mediating in employment matters and your publication in December of 2021. And I want us to talk about this for a moment, which was entitled Key Considerations for Mediating Sexual Harassment Cases. And that was published in the American Bar Association section of litigation. Can you talk to us about what those key considerations are? What even prompted you to draft this article and maybe an experience that you've had in mediating these types of sexual harassment cases? Uh, Yes. So I actually wrote the article after mediating many, many sexual harassment and sexual assault cases as well, dealing on the civil end. So I used to represent people too, you know, on who are plaintiffs in sexual assault cases. And now actually out in New Jersey, I have to say, uh, we are required as attorneys to do pro bono work every year. So I have had criminal clients as well that I've represented. So again, I, I always seem to end up on all sides of the table. So I wrote this article because I realized that for people who are doing mediation, even employment mediation, there is a difference when you are mediating the sexual harassment type of case, because now you're dealing with individuals who are very distressed and traumatized, and you really need to handle your cases, the attorneys involved, all parties, with heightened sensitivity that you really don't do with your regular cases. So there are certain areas that stand out, and I that's what prompted me to write that article. So one of the, the biggest things that you have to contend with as a mediator is you know, recognizing that you're dealing with people. And people have emotions, and they communicate with emotions. There is no communication that doesn't come through a human being without emotions. That's how we convey our information. So when you're dealing with a sexual harassment, sexual assault type case, now you're cutting to the core of what people really, their self-identity, you know, who they are as an individual, how, how they define themselves. And if they are mistreated or discriminated against um, because of their gender, 
it, it really can have severe impact psychologically, emotionally, physically. And now in the employment arena, in that space, their livelihood is also in jeopardy. So, you know, you're, you're combining all of those things. And I use the word just in general lawsuits, helpless before. Well, these people can feel helpless and powerless. And so, you know, you want to empower everybody at the mediation table in these types of cases. So there are certain techniques as mediators that can help to give a voice and empower all of the participants, make everybody there feel that they are understood and that they are valued. And mediation is confidential. And that is also really important for sometimes for participants who want to keep this out of the public. They want to have a safe environment where they are comfortable and secure and not have the the process and the outcome being public. So I run through in the article that you mentioned, Judy, a whole bunch of techniques about building rapport and empathy, mutual understanding, and you know, letting the the person who is bringing the suit just really release all of the negative emotions that can impede their ability to to exercise in logical and rational thought, right? When we're all upset, you know, how can you sit there and think straight, put on your business hat the same way you are when you're not upset? There's there's a big difference. I wanted to just follow on that vein and the thought that two things you said that were really important. Do you believe then that mediation allows for a greater, greater avenue for someone who's alleging sexual harassment that allows them to have this release, have a true say in what happened to them versus the traditional court system, what you've seen in your practice? Well, there's a difference. There's a difference. And that totally depends on the person. Some people want to have their day in court. They don't want to mediate. They want to go into a courtroom and broadcast to the entire world about what happened to them because they want to stand up for themselves and for other victims and and to stop the perpetrator, you know, so that they they can no longer be a serial predator or harasser. So, you know, if that is the goal, then mediation would not be the right forum for them. You know, some people don't want to live it again. If you go through the court route, you're going to have to be deposed, you know, so you'll have depositions taken where you'll be questioned and you'll have to talk about everything again. And then in a courtroom, you will most likely be put on the witness stand and have to relive the experience uh, if you are the victim. So many people don't want to do that, but some do. So again, that is that is such an individual decision. Depends on the objective. So then let's discuss for a moment. Are you familiar with the recent legislation? And maybe what, February of this year, Senator New York State Senator Kirsten Gillibrand had pursued and the Senate actually passed, I believe the formal name is the End Forced Arbitration in Sexual Harassment Act. And I may be saying that, but the import of it was that no longer could employers have clauses or arbitration programs where employees were forced to resolve sexual harassment through arbitration. Any thoughts on that, whether it's you see that as a plus or minus or 
any indifference as to that act and how employers should view that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm very familiar with that. Thank you. It was actually um, signed into law by President Biden on March 3rd, effective immediately. And the formal name of that is Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021. And it has been dubbed the Me Too Law because starting in 2017 uh, with what happened with um, Alyssa Milano putting out that tweet and right. all of the over 80 Hollywood actresses coming forward against Harvey Weinstein. And we had Matt Lauer in there and Roger Ailes and, and so many others uh, that began, began this national dialogue and this movement uh, that we called Me Too and Time's Up. And it culminated in this federal legislation. Now, a few years ago in New Jersey, we had legislation under our New Jersey law against discrimination uh, that Governor Murphy signed into law. And that was saying out here in our state of New Jersey that there can no longer be non-disclosure provisions and settlement agreements and mandatory arbitrations in employment contracts you know, if they were going to silence the victim. And so there was a, a difference then between our federal leg legislation, the Federal Arbitration Act, and the New Jersey LAD, and there were challenges. And so, you know, we had a couple of years there where, where things were pretty hotly contested and controversial. And now this federal law now aligns with the New Jersey law against discrimination, which basically is saying that we can no longer have forced arbitration or mandatory arbitration to silence the survivors of sexual assault and, and harassment. And uh, Vice President Harris was quoted as saying, you know, that these arbitration clauses had shielded predators instead of holding them accountable and denied individuals who are mostly women the right to seek justice in court. So basically, before this legislation, Anybody, uh, it was mostly women, but some men too, who wanted to bring these claims had to go to arbitration. And now they have their choice of forums, so they still can go to arbitration, but they can also choose, if they want, a court or agency under federal, state, or tribal law. So this still gives uh, parties the option to arbitrate, but it's not forced upon them. And so do you see this as impacting the arbitration process? So I know that you're involved in so many different organizations, the New York State, the New Jersey State Bar, Professional Association of Mediators. Do you see this impacting increasing arbitrations? You, what do you anticipate or what do you forecast? I think that employers just need to go back and check their contracts and and check their provisions and, you know, make sure that it's in alignment with this law to make sure, you know, that they are in uh, compliance with the current law. And looking ahead, I, I don't know if I can answer that question as to what the impact is going to be, um, because, you know, I do see an ambiguous area in it. I don't know if that is going to, you know, have a lot of litigation spawn off of it, because right now only sexual harassment and sexual assault claims are addressed, that those 
cannot be, you know, part of forced arbitration clauses. But let's say there's other types of harassment or discrimination, they are not addressed. So does this now mean that the entire lawsuit that includes these sexual harassment, sexual assault claims, that the whole lawsuit now has to be brought in court? Or is it just these provisions? You know, so I do want to point out, though, that what has happened since the passage of this law is that there is another bill in the House, and this will really, I mean, the House passed it, it's going to the Senate, and this is going to determine the answer to your question as as to what's going to happen with future litigation and arbitration. So for those that don't know, the U.S. House just passed the FAIR Act. F-A-I-R is an acronym for Forced Arbitration and Justice Repeal Act. And so what this will do, it will broaden that Me Too law, you know, that we just talked about. And it will, instead of just including the sexual harassment and sexual assault claims, it will now include employment, consumer, antitrust, and civil rights claims as well. So this is taking the the law that was just passed March 3rd and really, really expanding it. So it's a question of whether it's going to pass through the Senate right now. We, We don't know that. And also just want to bring out a little bit of statistics here so people understand like why this is so important. And so you need to realize that back in the early 1990s, in 1992, basically only 2% of contracts had mandatory arbitration clauses in it. And then by the early 2000s, almost a quarter of the workplace used these mandatory arbitration provisions. And now fast forward then to present times 2022, and there are over 55% of workers in our country are subject to mandatory arbitration. And by workers, I'm talking about non-union private sector employees. So we've gotten to the point where these cases of, you know, for mandatory arbitration now surpass litigation in court in order for workers to adjudicate any claims that they have. And in companies that are over a thousand employees, over 65% of them are subject to mandatory arbitration. So this is a, a really, really big issue that affects the majority of the people in the workplace and even more so industries that are disproportionately composed of women workers and of African-American workers, uh, people in low-wage you know, workplaces and industries are the most affected by it. So that's an interesting trend and statistics. And I love, um, aside from being, Felicia, a podcast junkie, I am a statistic junkie. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I, so those stats that you just gave, to me, what that says, the story behind it is that alternative dispute resolution came about as a way to fix some of the systemic issues that were present in the judicial for like things you stated before, the time, the money, the emotional expense, the anxiety. And here you had arbitration coming about to kind of address and solve these. But it looks like some very um, opportunistic individuals took the arbitration process and instead turned it on its head so that it would negatively impact individuals who were seeking 
to kind of resolve their disputes outside of court. Is that what this trend is saying? Did I read that story correctly? Well, as an arbitrator, you know, I'm partial to arbitration and I think arbitration is a great process and it definitely works. But research has shown that in arbitration, it disproportionately favors the employer over the employee and there is a greater cost to it and it does keep it out of the public. So again, it really depends on what you're looking for. I do have to say from the consumer standpoint, the majority of us are without, I don't even know if most people realize that they are subjected to forced arbitration provisions when they go to get a credit card, a cell phone, sign up for cable, get into nursing home. These are all types of situations. Like I could think of some more like student loans, prepaid cards, payday loan agreements, all of these things right now, the consumer is subject to mandatory arbitration provisions. And you could say, oh, well, it's voluntary. You have a choice on whether or not you want to sign up for these products or you want to get that job if it's in an employment contract, because these are all preconditions. But do you really have a choice? Yeah. Do you really have a choice? It's funny, in preparing for our conversation today, I had I was doing some home renovation in the basement that I'm in. And in going to Lowe's, I just was scanning over the contract. And of course, right there was the arbitration provision. So you're absolutely right. We as consumers are so many parts of our lives are subject to arbitration, which I personally, just to put it out there, I am very much in favor of mediation and arbitration. I know that it saves time. I know that it saves money and it's much less emotionally taxing. I am on the AAA panel myself. So I am a proponent of arbitration. Let's just, there's there's two more topics that I want to discuss. I know that this is a busy Monday morning when we're, well, afternoon as we're recording this, but you brought up Felicia about the negative impact on that can happen. It doesn't always happen, but can happen for women, African-Americans. And along that vein, you penned a brilliant article. And I'd like you to touch on that briefly for the New York State Bar Association, becoming a culturally competent neutral. Talk to us about that. So someone that's listening to this, so you realize you are a woman or you're in a minority group and you realize that you are having a dispute and you're forced to go into arbitration. How can you really look around the room and feel satisfied that your case is being heard by a culturally competent neutral? And also footnote, if you are a neutral and you are intentionally trying to become more culturally competent, what are ways that we can do that to ensure that the system works better? Well, first of all, I would hope that before you find yourself sitting at a table with a mediator arbitrator, you will have spoken with them first. So my practice in both areas is to always have at least have one minimum telephone call uh, with the parties, with their attorneys, so they get to know me and I speak with them as well. And that would be a great opportunity if you're considering going this route into ADR, kind of interview uh, who you're getting, make sure that they're the right fit. And just as Judy said, as she has, uh, sounds like, scoured my 
my CV, my website, which is online, you want to do that to whoever you are hiring. You want to see if they've written any articles in this area, if they've been on any panels having to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, if they have themselves, you know, put any information about cases that they've handled in this regard. So it's, it's really important to know who your mediator or arbitrator is. But also, you know, just for, because we have attorneys that listen to the show. And if you're an attorney, if you're an arbitrator, what would you say maybe one thing that arbitrator, that mediator can do to ensure that they are remaining or developing cultural competency? How can they do that? All right. So as a mediator, one of the things that we have to be careful of our, ourselves is that we are impartial because we cannot be the best mediator for a case if we are biased or prejudiced. So we have to do a self-awareness check. Now, we all know on an outward level if we have any types of explicit biases, but sometimes we can have what's known as implicit biases, which are those that operate at a level uh, below our conscious awareness. We don't even know that we have them, and therefore, how do we manage or control something that we don't even know if we have? So there is something called the Harvard Implicit Association Test, and I have done it, and I think many in the community, mediation and arbitration community have done it. So you can go online. Right. I've heard of that. Yeah. And you can take this test and you can see whether it shows you whether you have any types of unconscious biases towards all different areas. You know, it has different types of food and race and preferences for sports. I mean, you name it, they have different association tests. Uh, to measure your attitudes, beliefs, and stereotypes. Yeah. So that could be a good, yeah, that could be a good indication to see if you have any unconscious biases that you're, you don't even know that you have. And for those that you do, um, it's always really, really important to try and expand where you get your information from, you know, what news outlets, where, what organizations you belong to. So by being curious about other people's cultures and heritages and their traditions and learning about them, watching documentaries, reading books, uh, researching them, traveling to new places, you know, spending time asking questions with other professionals and peers, there are all sorts of trainings on implicit bias and anti-racism, anti-oppression. These are all ways that you can try and build your cultural competency. So important. That is absolutely important. When you were talking before, I made a note here about the start of uh, Kirsten Gillibrand's legislation about forcing end arbitration and the whole Me Too movement. One of the ways that I would have to say that I learned more, that I was identifying different implicit biases is understanding the work, the genesis of the Me Too movement, which was Tawana Burke, who started it in the late, late early 90s and that movement and learning about that and seeing how many women started quietly on that movement. I also was interested in the test you were talking about, that Harvard test. You know, Felicia, when I first started practicing, 
you are standing there next to your client, be it in court or could be in your office and you're doing case intake and you make assumptions. So sometimes the biases don't even have to do with, you know, race or ethnicity. And I was noticing something about the client and it popped in my head. It said, I don't believe that this, um, this gentleman across from me is fully literate, that he can read. And without exposing that, come to find out, he could not read what was in front of him. From then on and having work that I had done with students um, in school districts and learning more about IEPs or the individual individualized educational programs, then I began to incorporate into my intake and really unearth implicit biases about the learning styles and learning differences. We assume that individuals are traditional learners, and that could be a bias. And it was one bias that I uncovered on myself. So, you know, I guess the best takeaway for that is to be great attorneys, to fix any systemic problems in any systems, we have to uncover our first biases. And it seems to me, I don't know if you would agree with this, I think once you become aware of the biases that are in your own personality, you start looking around for more and that makes you a better professional. That At least that's what I found. Have you found that also? Oh, I absolutely agree. So you can't work on something that you don't know about. So self-awareness is the first step. So once you become aware of them, then you can work on them. And it, it was really fascinating when I learned that even if you have long-standing, deep-seated biases, if you gain new information, it can actually immediately, instantly change that bias that you have. So people can be educated and they can expand their knowledge, which can help combat any existing biases. That's why all the things that I said, you know, start asking questions and, you know, joining new groups and traveling to new places, and that will help you. Right. I love this conversation. And as we wrap up, tell us some of the things. Do you have any projects that you're working on? I know I'm very honored and excited to serve on a panel that you'll be facilitating. Can you talk about that for a moment or any other books or projects you're working on? Uh, yes, yes. So Judy is referring through the, the uh, New Jersey Association of Professional Mediators. I belong to so many organizations. I'm vice president of, <laughs> of this that we call NJPM. We have an upcoming spring conference and Judy and I are both on a panel for teaching other mediators different tips and techniques on how to handle are the most difficult cases when you do hit impasses, you know, how to, how to get around them. So that is something that is really important because basically I always view any dispute as an impact, right? That's why the parties are coming to the mediation table or the arbitration hearing or filed a court case because they're at an impasse, you know, they can't agree on a resolution. So you know, continuing learning in your professional field is really important. So I am doing that right now. I also, besides all my work in the dispute resolution field, I'm also an author. So I have a new book out called Ice Queen. So yes. Can we purchase that? Is it out? Yeah, yeah. Ice Queen, it's on Amazon. I have it in print ebook and hard copy. 
It's through Barnes and Noble, and also you can get it on different library sites, uh, Kobo, Apple, Overdrive. Yeah, so it's really out there. It's won 11 awards. Awesome. And it's about, thank you, it's about cyberbullying and sexting and how kids, unsuspecting, innocent kids can get caught up um, in all these cyber behaviors that can lead to uh, legal troubles besides the social and emotional problems. So it's a, it's a cautionary tale. It's fiction, but it's really taking a lot of true life, common situations and weaving them into, you know, a suspenseful tale. And I've gotten great feedback about it. And I've actually been asked to write a sequel. So I have been doing that. I've been working on my sequel for Ice Queen. Well, you have been busy. And that's why, one, you have to come back. Because I did know about Ice Queen. We talked about that in our pre-call. And the whole sexting and cyberbullying, I know, Felicia, I have a really dedicated group of parents and um, elite athletes that listen to the show. And I know that especially the cyberbullying is a tactic and a retaliation that's used within that population of listeners. So I know that they would love to have you back and to talk about that. I'm going to link to the book in the show notes. Thank you so much for talking to us about alternative dispute resolution. I absolutely with like you are a proponent because it does. Listeners, when you look at the court systems, when you look at traditional civil litigation, civil litigation, sometimes I tell people, and I don't know if you agree with this, uh, forget the expense, the emotional expense. I have seen litigants express, they're not necessarily, they're not frustrated with me or my service. They're frustrated with the process. And it is just, it taxes and it takes out of them. So this is the way, reach out to, I'm going to put, Felicia, people can connect with you, but just briefly, what is your website? So people, if they have a pen or they're jotting this down. All right. So my website for mediation arbitration is Farber, F as in Fox, A as in Apple, R as in Rain, B as in Boy, E as in Egg, R as in Rain, FarberResolutions.com. And my website, if you want to learn more about me and my books, is FeliciaFarber.com. And that's F as in Fox, E-L-I-C-I-A, F as in Fox, A-R, B as in boy, E-R. And I spelled out those certain letters because they're hard to hear, you know, verbally. So FeliciaFarber.com, FarberResolutions.com, and you'll know everything about me. Awesome. Felicia, thank you so much for taking the time and everybody else. Thank you. This has been fabulous. Good. Excellent. Everybody take care. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.